you can now hear Movie Heaven Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favourite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad and in over 4 million car dashboards. You can stream your favourite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the app store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers that enjoy talking about movies and related topics. And for this podcast special, we are very happy to welcome back a returning guest of ours, uh, Skyping in from the Star Trek 50 celebration in Las Vegas, we have filmmaker Charles de Lozarica. So welcome back to the show, Charles, and it's... Uh, Great to have you involved in this. Uh, thanks for having me back, and I apologize in advance if I'm, if I'm a little low energy today. Being It's been a pretty uh, fun but brutal last few days here in Las Vegas with all the uh, track mania and uh, all the, the craziness here. No worries. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons why we're here. We're uh, doing free podcasts to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, and uh in a weird way, we're going to start off backwards. So we're going to start talking about the uh, the Star Trek reboot, um, parts 11 to 13, uh, also known as the Kelvin films. <laughs> the Kelvin-verse, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, no, absolutely. I mean, Star Trek is, a, is another, uh, you know, big influence growing up and one that's got, you know, there's a lot to talk about. So... To kick things off with our guest and hopefully wake you up a bit, Charles, over there in um, in in Vegas, uh, could you start by maybe sort of telling us how you first discovered Star Trek and and you know how you got into it? Well, it's interesting because most people I know got into Star Trek either through the original series or the Next Generation, and I'm at a, a certain age where I got in actually through the animated series. Um, so I was kind of in between the two big milestones and, and Trek there. And um, I really enjoyed the animated series quite a bit because unlike the rest of sort of the cartoons that were on TV at the time, it was, it was serious and it was smart and um, strangely creepy uh, and, uh, and kind of, uh, I don't know, mysterious in, in some ways, but also kind of uh, simple and easy to follow as a kid. So uh, I enjoyed the visuals of it, even though those visuals were, were you know, relatively simple and all, there was a lot of reused cells and things. Um, but I didn't care about that as a kid. I only cared about this sort of interesting sort of family of characters that would go on these exotic adventures. Um, but then around the same time, I started to notice in, in Los Angeles on this uh, station, KCOP, which is Channel 13, they would be uh, showing reruns of the original series. And that's when I kind of 
as a kid, you know, I don't know if I was like five or six or whatever, but as a, as a kid, I kind of like connected, oh, that's the same thing. That's the same world, but in a live action. So I slowly kind of got into uh, the original series that way. But I got to say, I, 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 even then, it was around the same time that Star Wars hit. And I, you know, it was a few years later after that, anyway, uh, Star Wars hit. And that completely rocked my world. And I, and I became a full-blown Star Wars fanatic. And it really wasn't until 87 and The Next Generation that I kind of got back into Star Trek. I kind of fell back in love with it just because it was, you know, it was a weekly series and you got some of these characters over seven seasons. And, uh, it was, uh, it was just, it was, it was a, a really, I think, golden age of, uh, of science fiction and film and television. So it was easy to get back into Trek, um, after those first two, uh, kind of like, uh, samplings of, of that universe when I was a kid. No, that's, that's, that's kind of interesting. I mean, um, for for me, I always say that, um, you, you know, with all the sort of big influences when I was a kid, um, I was like a, I was a second generation Star Trek and, and James Bond fan um, and like a first generation Star Wars and Indiana Jones fan because, um, uh, and obviously all the superhero stuff, that's a bit different because they already had a life in, in, you know, comic books and film serials and stuff. But um, uh, yeah, I, I, I uh, you know, obviously, Star Trek had, had started in the sort of uh, decade before I was born, and um, when I when I first saw it, in fact, my glimpse, first glimpses of it probably were the animated series, actually. Um, but I actually really got into Star Trek uh, through the movies. So I always say that you know I'm a, I'm a fan of, of of Star Trek from from the movie series um, more than the more than the original television series, because what they did here in the UK is, um, well, as I'm sure they, you know, good marketing. Um, once the Star Trek, the motion picture had come out, which was obviously only a couple of years after Star Wars, um, they then re-released and, and played reruns all the time of, of, of the original series. And I kind of then sort of caught up with that stuff whilst watching the, uh, that the, the movie releases uh, initially on D, on uh, VHS, and then um, you, you know started going to see them at the cinema, etc. So uh, uh, and and you know very very fond of it indeed. Um, how about you, Simon? The first Star Trek I saw was the motion picture um, at the cinema, and but I was so young that um, I I don't remember it. Uh, I don't. I, I only know because my parents told me a story that um, they had to leave halfway through because I started crying. <laughs> so um, that was my first experience of Star Trek. But uh, I was then, sort of years later, taken by my cousin to see Star Trek Two, and um, I'm not quite sure. I think at the time it was. I mean, it certainly was a 15 on VHS, but I don't know if it was uh, a similar rating at the cinema. But I remember seeing that at the cinema and I was like, I was sort of blown away by that. And then um, then watching the, the original series on uh, BBC Two uh, on like a, a weekday evening around six o'clock. I would sort of rush back from school and uh, sit down and watch the original Trek. Um, the first episode I remember seeing was um, the one with what looked like those pizza creatures that would drop down. Oh, the devil in the dark. Yes, the Horta, I think. Is it? It no, was it basically a man under the carpet? 
No, no, no. Okay. Yeah, you're thinking of those 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 kind of nasty looking pizza creatures that would drop from the ceiling and land on your back and get you right. I mean, I remember that that, one. That scared scared the hell out of me as a kid. That episode. I I I think I remember that one. Uh, I remember. Is it the City on the Edge of Tomorrow? The one City on the Edge of Forever. Yeah. Oh, forever. Yeah. Okay. And I remember that one. And then. and then, of course, uh, all the rest of the original series films came out. And then, of course, 87, uh, Next Generation came out. And I first saw that on VHS, and then it was on BBC Two, and I would watch that. And then I would watch uh, Deep Space Nine, where I have to say that was when my love for Trek really hit its peak, was uh, during the Deep Space Nine era. And then with Voyager, and then it kind of petered out with Enterprise. Mm-hmm. But um, I've, I've I've more or less seen all the films at the cinema, including five. By the way, I just want to clarify my own stories. Like you know, I skipped over the movies because I was focusing on the on the TV. But the the movies, I, I definitely uh, since I was more into movies and television anyway, I, I really loved the movies. Uh, beginning with the motion picture, I think the motion picture still to this day is uh, a majestic, beautiful, smart epic film and and you know i know people love to point out its flaws they call it a motionless motionless picture or whatever they call it but um I, I i find beauty in that in that kind of languid pace you know in the same way that 2001 which is you know far more of an art film than, than star trek the motion picture but um there is a kind of a, a i don't know a sense of wonder and discovery to that first star trek film that the others don't really seem to be interested in, um, which is fine, because like Star Trek II, I think, is a, a really powerful, passionate, fun, um, uh, kind of, you know, yarn of, of a film. I mean, I think that, you know, Nicholas Meyer wanted to make a kind of a nautical adventure that uh, <clears throat> explored senses, like explored themes of uh, mortality and friendship and, and, and growing old, you know, and I thought that was pretty, pretty uh, bold for a what was otherwise a popcorn, you know, summer movie in the summer of 82, which of course is still probably the greatest movie summer ever uh, for all the other films that came out that year. But I, I really did enjoy pretty much most of the Star Trek films until five. And, uh, and, and just a, a funny side story on Star Trek five, I actually got, I got to go to a, a test screening of it on the Paramount lot uh, early when the visual effects were really rough, rougher than they are even in their final state. And, um, you could tell the audience did not enjoy uh, that film in particular. And afterwards, uh, in the street outside this uh, this theater on the Paramount lot, um, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy was out there as well. But William Shatner was there, surrounded by presumably Paramount executives. And some of the fans on the screen had gone up to Shatner to ask for his autograph or just to say hi. And and I happened to be pretty close when this angry fan came up to Shatner and said, uh, "How many more of these are you going to make?" You know, like really angrily. And Shatner, without missing a beat, said about one and a half. And he was joking, but it turned out he was exactly right. He made one and a half more Star Trek. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I mean, I really, I'm really pleased to hear you uh, not rag on Star Trek, the motion picture, actually, because, um, uh, yeah, two, two and three I saw it on vhs but to be fair yes my my dad uh did actually take me to see star trek the motion picture when i was very young i remember mum was the one who took me to see star wars and superman and dad took me to see star trek and flash gordon (laughs) and um and 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 i still you know to this day maintain because i was 
as a young child, I was absolutely blown away by that uh, scene with the wonderful um, score by Jerry Goldsmith, where Scotty and Kirk uh, take the shuttle out to uh, to go around the new refitted Enterprise. And I, and I still think that, you know, even today that really holds up and, and looks great. So, uh, yeah, I do have kind of a special place for for all the Star Trek movies, um, you know, including the motion picture, which uh, I know a lot of people don't agree with. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think there's a new appreciation of it uh, in recent years because I think maybe a lot of the old school fans of Star Trek uh, are having maybe, you know, having to deal with sort of the new rebooted JJ-verse uh, Star Trek, which is more about fun and 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 pyrotechnics and excitement and, and, and certainly I think they have strong, you know, uh, character elements in those films, but you know, it's, it's definitely more of a rock and roll sensibility than the original Trek films or series or books or anything else in Star Trek previous to the 2009 film. Going back to the motion picture is a way of like saying that's kind of where we we went astray, even though the, there are several films after the motion picture, which I think are really good that was probably the last time there was a, a true sort of heady, thoughtful, you know, philosophical, um, Star Trek film, which by the way, also is, is beautifully crafted. Um, the visual effects are astounding scores, probably one of Goldsmith's best. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's easy to go back and love the motion picture when you just kind of think about it for a bit. Well, I, I don't know whether you guys found this, but what, what I found when I was at school when it used to really anger me um, as a kid, you know, I was always passionate about this stuff, even as a youngster. But um, we always had these sort of two camps of Star Trek versus Star Wars. And, you know, you either you either were really into Star Wars or you were really into Star Trek. And it was like you couldn't be into both of them. And, and I used to get really annoyed about that because I used to think, well, apart from them being you know, science fiction and dealing with interplanetary travel and alien life forms, that's that's the only similarity. You, you know, you've got obviously Star Trek in our galaxy, in our future, in a very utopian future. You've got Star Wars in a galaxy far, far away, um, you know, a long time ago, uh, you, you know, with a war going on. Um, you know, Star Trek obviously dealt with things like time travel and alternate realities and discovery, whereas, you know, Star Wars, you had this spiritual force and good versus evil and all that sort of thing. So I never, for me personally, I always thought there was plenty of room, have plenty of love for both. But it did used to annoy me when they used to have comparisons and in the schoolyard, you, you know, you weren't cool if you were watching Star Trek, if you were one of the Star Wars kids and stuff. I, I don't know whether... That, it was like that in the US or whether you experienced anything like that, Simon. But um, de definitely when I was growing up, it, it seemed that, you, you know, you're either into one or the other, which uh, I, I didn't agree with. <laughs> Sounds reminds me of like when the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were out that people were said, oh, you could only be a Beatles fan or a Rolling Stones fan. And yet I don't think they actually knew that the, the two bands were actually good friends and actually wrote music for each other. So... Uh, I'm kind of with you on that, Keith, where, um, you know, I don't see a, a difference between the two. And I guess I was lucky at the schools that I went to because the, there was none of that. Um, but I think because mostly people were Star Wars fans, but I don't ever remember there being arguments about which was better, Star Trek or Star Wars, because, you know, we all of us would sort of run home at the end of the day to to watch Star Trek. So, no, I didn't experience that. 
Um, we, we definitely, I, I experienced that uh, a bit out here, but I didn't really particularly take one side or the other. I mean, I was definitely more of a Star Wars fan because, you know, Star Trek had been around for such a long time. I mean, it was, it, it, it was before I was born that it, that it began. And I, um, I kind of grew up with it always as this thing that was kind of on TV. It didn't, wasn't a big hit. You know, there's only three seasons. And even then it was because of a letter writing campaign. It just had that feel of like something that was very cult, you know? Um, it wasn't until later that I think Star Trek really exploded into the, into the mainstream. Whereas Star Wars just came out of nowhere. Like that was like a lightning bolt that just surprised everybody. And so it's, I think it was easier to be, you know, wowed by the Star Wars phenomenon because it was, it came from nowhere and it was everywhere when it did hit. You know, Star Trek kind of kind of crept along for a while until it found, I think, more of a pop culture uh, footing. But as a kid, um, I loved them both. Um, I was definitely, again, more of a Star Wars kid, but I, I never, ever, you know, argued over over which was supposedly better. I think there were two different things, and it was easy to love them both, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Well, I used to, I used to sort of find that, you know, because they sort of, in, in terms of the original Star Wars trilogy, you, you kind of had a, a Star Trek movie in the year between each each of the trilogy, you know, each of that trilogy. So yeah. um, I sort of found that, you know, I was happy all around because, you know, I'd be really into Star Wars when all that stuff was out. And then the next year, you, you know, I'd be really into Star Trek. And but knowing that I had more Star Wars to look forward to and, and vice versa. So, um, yeah, yeah, really important stuff. But, uh, you know, I didn't have a life as a kid of either, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, f- I think that's a good place to sort of lead into talking about the uh, the sort of J.J. Abrahams Star Treks because at the end of the day, they seem to be an amalgamation of the two, of Star Wars and Star Trek. That's true. Do you want to start, Charles, on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it was, it was obvious after uh, Nemesis that, uh, you know, Star Trek needed a, an adrenaline shot to the heart, you know, like the same Pulp Fiction, um, to save it. And that adrenaline shot was J.J. Abrams and his take on it. And, um, you know, I could, again, I could see why some Star Trek purists might be allergic to his, you know, what he had to do to save Star Trek. But I feel like what he did was exactly what was needed. Uh, And there's, again, there's decades worth of old original Star Trek still there, if if that's what you prefer. But I think at this point in time, you know, um, it makes sense to make it a little bit more mainstream, a little bit more accessible to people who aren't Star Trek fans. Because Star Trek fans, I think, will turn out for Star Trek no matter what it is, no matter what flavor it is or what iteration it is. They'll always be there for Star Trek because they're passionate and loyal and they, they care. Um, in, in just the economic and financial sort of situation um, in, in the film industry, I mean, you have to really kind of go big or go home with movies these days, which is sad, but you, you kind of have to make these $200 million movie movies that then go on to make a billion dollars. I mean, that seems to be the, the formula for so many big movies these days. And for Star Trek to survive in that environment, it kind of had to step up to that type of filmmaking, you know, whether you like it or not. And, and I think that first 2009 film um, did a really solid job of bringing Star Trek forward for a new generation. Um, and for people who maybe used to think Star Trek was kind of nerdy and not for them and kind of like filed it away with Doctor Who and, and, and you know, other kind of geekier things. And, and it showed those people in the mainstream that Star Trek could be um, for them. And that broadened the audience. And then maybe that convinced them or gave them the courage to go back and watch original Star Trek, which I think is great if, if that was the case. 
you know, but, but then it's sort of like, well, how, how far do you chase that adrenaline of, of the new Star Trek films? And I think that, you know, I think it's been sort of hit and miss since with, uh, Into Darkness and Beyond. And I, and I think, you know, Beyond, um, is certainly a step up from Into Darkness. I think it's gotten back to sort of the, the pure fun and joy of the Star Trek universe. And I think the, again, the one thing the first film did so well, the first J.J. Abrams film did so well, was establish this cast. You know, I don't mean establish the characters because we've known these characters for a long time, but to, but to fill those shoes um, with with new actors, basically, that's a pretty daunting task. And I think they handle that extremely well in that first film, like putting putting together a new family for those roles. I have to say, when I saw the first one, um, I was kind of disappointed, and it didn't kind of. I I, I remember coming out of that screening thinking well, it was all right, but I think just thinking about it now, I think one of the reasons why I was kind of disappointed because I knew that them going back to the original series meant that we weren't going to get the Deep Space Nine film or the Voyager film. And to me, that seemed to be a bit of a loss because I was I was certainly a big Deep Space Nine fan and it was from the point of view that we actually saw a war that takes place within the Federation. And and I would have I would have loved to seen that up on the big screen. Uh, Voyager, maybe not so much. I mean, Voyager was lost in space for Star Trek and they made their way home. And so that was their journey complete. But um, I did feel kind of cheated that we didn't get like the Deep Space Nine movie because it, that's how it looked like the series was going to go. We were going to get, you know, we had the original series, we had the next generation and then Deep Space Nine. But um, unfortunately, I think Nemes Nemesis was kind of like the nail in the head for of that coffin yeah no absolutely i mean i i'm slightly different to you there simon in in so much as when i went to see uh the star trek reboot um in 2009 i i i just had a massive ear-to-ear -ear grin for the entire thing i mean i i went with my good friend tyrone uh we saw it on like one of the first screenings at the imax it was right before going to can actually and um I, what I loved about it, because I was worried, you know, I, I, had, I, I was kind of, you know, as, as, a, as a Star Trek fan of, of, of all of it, you know, the movies the tele and the various television series, I was um, kind of, you know, slightly sceptical and slightly worried. And, uh, but I just thought it was very clever because what I thought was very good is, is they, they managed to make it kind of a, a, a prequel and an origin story for these characters but at the same time it was sort of a sequel to both what they'd set up in enterprise and obviously a sequel to things that came after nemesis as well but then they managed to make it a reboot of everything as you know and make it fresh and and obviously because of using nimoy in it as spot prime um, and, and rather than him just having like a sort of stupid little cameo or something, actually having his character as a proper part and as the bridge between it there, I felt that one of the things they did was they were able to do this without upsetting the hardcore Star Trek fans because suddenly, you, you know, continuity and, well, you know, whether the ship looked slightly different or, or the technology was slightly different and, and, you know, all of that sort of stuff 
made sense. I mean, it did absolutely uh, overwrite, apart from enterprise, it, 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 it's going to, of course, overwrite everything going on. It's a bit like they've done with the, the whole sort of X-Men franchise now after Days of Future Past. But, um, but I, I just thought it was a really creatively imaginative way um, to handle it and still be respectful to the, um, to, to, to the original as well. And, um, uh, you, you know, I was really happy with, with, with everything about it. And, and I also like the fact that they, they always used the 60s yeah. original series as the template when it came to all of the design, even though everything was, was very much updated. You know, they were all still wearing the, you know, similar uniforms and similar phases and you know similar things right the way along but at the same time making it fresh and of course you, you know they, they'd been very imaginative with the casting as well so um so yeah i was really happy with it well i have to say though i did go back um i bought it on blu-ray and i i think i enjoyed it a lot more uh on the second viewing and i i enjoy it a lot more now uh every time i watch it and i have to say the opening sequence where you see kirk being born in you know in battle i think is very effective and i have to say i kind of tear up every every time i see that uh, sequence now and it's kind of weird though because the 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 film never kind of reaches that height that it does within those first 10 minutes those first 10 minutes of of uh star trek 2009 is really well done yeah that's true i i agree um i actually um my, my girlfriend uh hadn't seen any of star trek until recently, I mean, like nothing. And I think, again, like many people, she was sort of afraid to get into it because it might have seemed too too geeky or, or you know, maybe not her thing. But um, we, we knew we were going to go to Comic-Con and we knew that we'd probably be going to the Star Trek Beyond premiere that was there. So I thought it was important she at least see the first J.J. Abrams movie, the 2009 film. And, and I, I think she kind of sat there. And by the way, she's here in the hotel room with me, so she might yell at me from across the room. But, uh, <laughs> she, I think she kind of sat there thinking, okay, here's Star Trek, let's see what this is about. And then that opening scene, she was in tears, like within you know minutes. And, and frankly, I was too, again. It's like I had seen that scene, you know, the, the film, like maybe four or five times. And, and uh, even now, I see that opening just gets me, you know, and it immediately hooks you into that, that situation, that world. And, um, and it kind of it kind of clears away, I think, any concerns or um, hesitation you might have about this new timeline, you know, and I, and I do think it was smart to sort of come up with this way to uh, start a new kind of a, a new timeline, a new kind of like have it splinter off and become its own thing. You know, sadly, I, I think that was squandered a bit in, into darkness by going right back to Khan and kind of going right back into that you know, kind of like almost like the timeline is trying to bend itself back into the original timeline. I kind of, kind of wish they just gone off on a completely different direction, which I think Beyond tried to course correct uh, to some degree. I have to say, though, watching all three films, I have noticed that they do seem to are kind of following the same thread as the original Star Trek movies, and I'll explain. So the first one, there's a threat against Earth, like in the motion picture, even though it's not Vija. The second one, it's Khan. And in the third one, the Enterprise is destroyed. So, and now I hear that the fourth one's possibly got something to do with time travel. <laughs> and the, the thing I loved about the first film was, as you say, they, they did a separate timeline and it did make it look like, you know what, guys? We're going to do our own thing. You know, you've got, there's the original Trek. We haven't, you know, it's still there. 
And now we're going to go off and do our own thing. And then they go and make remake Rafa Khan. Yeah. And it's just like, oh. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, for me, um, I loved Star Trek 2009, as I've already said. Um, I'm sure we'll get into it. I had loads of issues with Star Trek Into Darkness, which I'm sure we'll, we'll move on to shortly. Um, but I, I felt really inspired again after watching uh, Star Trek Beyond, uh, which I was really happy with. Um, but, you, you know, one of the things, again, I mean, that, that opening, uh, you know, resetting the timeline with, with, with Nero um, coming back and uh, Kirk's birth and all that. I mean, yeah, that is so wonderfully done. Uh, Chris Hemsworth, you know, who, who, who knew what he was going to go on to become, you know, is George Kirk. That was all nicely uh, covered and, and putting the Kelvin in there. And, um, you, you know, again, I have to take hat off to Michael Giacchino for the score at that point, because, um, y- you know, one of the things I was quite worried about was, you know, you know, a bit like I always associate, you know, of course, John Williams with Star Wars and, and John Barry with, with, with Bond. And I'd always, it always, for me, either been um, James Horner or uh, Jerry Goldsmith for Star Trek. And, um, you, you know, I was kind of worried, oh, is the music going to be any good? And, and, and like everything else about the film, he took it in a slightly different direction. Okay, you had the little Alexander Courage bit that they all take, Um from, from the original series, but he took it in a in another direction and, and, and made it really fresh and, and really work and really emotional, particularly in that particular scene. And the other thing, um, you, you know, where you correctly mentioned the sort of melding of, of the Star Wars and Star Trek sensibilities in, into these films. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but one of the sequences that I really loved, which was the... Um, the free four sequence leading to the drilling rig fight. Uh, and that always kind of, the energy in that fight always kind of remind, reminded me of the um, skiff fight above the Salak pit in Return of the Jedi. I don't know whether you felt that. I felt it had a very similar kind of energy and feel to it. And you could sort of certainly see how J.J. Abrams had been inspired, you know, more by Star Wars by his own admission that, that, than anything that had come before with Star Trek. Well, I don't know if I saw it as the skiff bell. Um, I, I'm, I don't remember anybody sort of uh, giving the signal to R2-D2 and then lots of nodding. No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. I mean the action. I'm just saying because I, I, I love that um, Family Guy joke where they do the whole thing where they're nodding and it just goes on and it goes on and it goes on. <laughs> so every time I think about the battle over the Sarlacc pit now, I always think of that sketch from uh, Family Guy. Uh, Family Guy's ruined it for you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> they love it. Or improved that. it some ways. <laughs> but... Uh... No, I just mean the energy of the fight and the cutting and the way it was kind of shot reminded me of when it all kicked okay. off, you know, after Luke jumped off of the... Um, uh, you know, the platform and sprung in the air and captured the lightsaber and it all kicks off and goes chaotic. I, I just yeah. kind of felt that it, it just for me, you know, how some things sort of sometimes remind you of something. I just felt it had a, a similar kind of energy. And I sort of thought, ah, yeah, JJ's kind of trying to bring that that rock and roll, as, as you put it, Charles, to, um, to, to Star Trek, which is normally classical music, you know. <laughs> well, it's interesting, though. I, I do agree with the, with the skiff battle notion because if you look at the the color palette of that scene you know the kind of like the brown rust you know kind of structure that they're on the the drilling you know uh platform uh 
you know, very similar to the the skiff and Java's sail barge. Um, that the fact they're over, you know, it was broad daylight. They're over a desert planet with a giant hole under them. <laughs> they're they're all worried about falling down into it. It is similar to the, to the Starlock Pit and the and that that skiff battle. I think it's just you know it's amplified you know by a hundred in many ways. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think that that's a little bit of Star Wars flavoring. I, that's that's what I would say. It's like Star Trek. It's it's still Star Trek, but it has Star Wars flavor in it now. You know, just a little bit of ingredients, little little spices here and there that feel Star Warsy. While we're on this, what what do we think? Should should we talk about? It's probably the next good thing to talk about is the actual cast and the casting on this. I mean, what 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 do you guys feel about the 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 ensemble of of, of the seven characters that they they reimagined for for, for this timeline? I mean, personally, I think uh, it's it's spot on on all seven of them, um, and 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 even like you know Captain Pike as well. I mean, I just think the, the casting in that first uh, you know JJ uh, Star Trek film is uh, phenomenal. I think I think each one of those actors inhabits the existing roles as we know them, but then develops them in different ways or gives them a, a bit of their own life. You know, because I mean, Chris Pine is not imitating William Shatner yet. No. He is still, he is, he's still clearly Kirk. You know, mm-hmm. so I think that was, you know, that's, that's a daunting task, I think, with these iconic roles that, uh, that we've known for all these, these years, uh, with actors who are, you know, um, completely, you know, identified with those characters. I mean, same with like Zachary Quinto, you know, taking over as Spock. I mean, you know, how dare you try to replace Leonard Nimoy, but it was good to have Leonard Nimoy in the film as to pass the baton. And, um, yeah, I can't think of a single actor in, in that film that, that didn't deliver the goods and then even take it further. I mean, I think Carl Urban to me is my my favorite of all the, uh, you know, the new cast in terms of how, you know, he definitely embodies a DeForest Kelly style, you know, kind of attitude towards things. And yet it's still clearly Carl Urban and he's taken it in his own direction now. And I thought he was wonderful and, and beyond. I mean, that was probably maybe my favorite of the three films in terms of the bones uh, component. But uh, yeah, I have, I have zero uh, negative to say about the casting of of the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. Simon, I have to say though, he has one cringe moment moment line in the in the original Star Trek where uh, he's talking about the, his wife's taking everything in the divorce, and all I've got is my bones. And I did kind of went, oh dear, but thankfully, thankfully that was the only line that made me groan. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, it's funny you say that because I I thought that line was actually genius, and I was surprised when I when I listened to the commentary on it that that was actually that was never in the script. That was an ad lib by Carl Urban on the oh. day oh, okay and, and, and but, I, but but i thought how could that have not been scripted because you know kirk had always called mccoy bones and we never really knew why exactly you know that was always his name and i just thought as this was an origin story and this is where they met and yeah i, I just i just thought it was it's interesting i i i, I disagree with you on that i actually thought that was a, a stroke okay. of genius but um but it was an ad lib as i said it wasn't in the script that would that was Carl, something that carl urban brought to it and uh and and it really worked but but what did you think simon of the of, of the of the rest of the the casting no i i agree with uh, with both of you that the casting is spot on i mean they did a really good job and uh everybody every actor sort of filled the role perfectly and um it's they're they are a great substitute for the original crew. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree as well. I mean, I I when I when I first saw them, 
uh, you know, before actually seeing the film, you see all the publicity pictures and whatever. Um, I, I was I was a little bit worried because, of course, you know, me being the total geek, as I, I wanted to actually buy that these were all younger versions of the characters that you, you know that we love, and um, obviously, you, you know, thankfully they 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 you know they'd cast it, they they'd kept the ethnicities the same and 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 the sort of physical types kind of similar and whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I was I was so happy when I actually saw the film because. Um, you, you, you know, I agree with you. Chris Pine, thankfully, he doesn't try and sort of imitate William Shatner's cadence or anything like that. He, he makes sort of Kirk his own, but at the same time, uh, he definitely has the spirit of the character. You know, same with Quinto. Um, you, you, you know, when you look at Carl Urban, uh, uh, he really, you, you know, doesn't look anything like DeForest Kelly, really, but he absolutely he does do kind of an impression of him in some ways, I suppose. But he he totally captures it. He's got the voice and he's he's got the mannerisms down completely. Um, I, I, Zoe Saldana, obviously gorgeous. She kind of she kind of makes it her own a little bit, as does John Cho with 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 Sulu. They they work. They kind of make it their own, but it totally works, I think. And then of course. Um, Sadly, you, you know, we've got the now late Anton Yeltsin, which is which is terribly tragic and, and absolutely awful. Um, but he, you, you know, again, didn't really look anything like Walter Koenig, but, you, you know, did a really good and convincing and, and massively humorous, you, you know, impression. Um, and, you know, was there, I know, for quite a bit of comic relief, but it, it totally worked. And then, of course, Simon Pegg, you, you know, I do kind of look at him as just being... Simon Pegg with slightly darker hair putting on a Scottish accent. But, you know, in the spirit of it all, particularly with him being such a Star Trek fan himself, I mean, it, I had a little bit of a reservation with that initially, but I, I've, I've got used to it now and, and I really like it. And, and I support exactly what you said, Charles, as well. I think uh, Bruce Greenwood uh, filling Jeffrey Hunter's, you know, shoes as, as, as um, Captain Pike, um, worked perfectly i totally bought that in 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 every way shape and form and you know just believe that he was on a on a different journey since the uh since the new timeline but uh yeah it, 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 i loved it i was happy and of course the you know i think as well eric banner who playing the original a, a, a new character to the story but um did a great job also as nero yeah i have to say though that i think the the one problem these films have is that the villains haven't been that great. Nero just seems to... I, I know Nero's got a very good reason to be pissed off, but he, he is just, I'm going to just destroy everything. And then you've got Khan, who's pissed off because, you know, his people are, you know, popsicles, so he's going to destroy everything. And then you've got... Um, you've got um, Krull, who's pissed off and wants to destroy everything and they the, all the villains just seem to be people who just are pissed off and want to destroy everything well I, you know it's funny because it, it, it almost reminds me of uh, aliens following alien um in that once people had a taste of aliens that's kind of all they wanted and it seems like you know the films that followed um in varying degrees uh were trying to get back to that that thrill ride of uh of aliens and in this case it's the wrath of khan it's like everyone not everyone but like a lot of the filmmakers all the probably studio decisions are all about chasing who's the next khan 
You know, what what villain can we use to top Khan? And they've never even come remotely close because Khan had a history with Kirk that that predated the films. Hmm. Um, and plus, Ricardo Montalban is you know was a, a, a unique singular persona on screen. I mean, the man was you know charisma, <laughs> you know at times a million. <laughs> and um, just having him walk into a scene, I mean, he, he chewed the scene the scenery like a Bond villain would, you know. But but I've not seen any villain since that even comes close. As much as they've had amazingly talented actors, and they've even had some interesting ideas as to why they're the villain. But, you know, I don't think you need a supervillain in every Star Trek movie. That was what was so great about the motion picture. And by the way, that's what was so great about The Voyage Home, which hmm. until the 2009 film was the highest grossing Star Trek film. So I think that, uh, you, you know, you don't always need that, that baddie. And, and uh, um, it'd be good to find a new um, challenge for this crew that doesn't involve um, some guy who has a grudge and is now going to come up with some master plan to wipe out everybody. But it seems yeah, like that's yeah. the that's the that's the more common, easier math to figure out when you're when you're coming up with these these films. I mean, it'll be interesting if the next film is indeed a time travel film because I, I know that you know George Kirk is going to be somehow coming back. Um, if maybe it's not a villain, maybe it's some sort of rift in time or something like that. But I doubt it. <laughs> I bet I bet there will be a supervillain <laughs> of some kind, and you know he's probably using kind of like probably it'll be like the the new version of Sauron from generations it'll be like some guy who's altering you know uh time and space to to maybe 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 is going to be less of a, a vengeance thing and more of uh you know trying to make his life whole situation i don't know but um i do i do think that we can probably see a, another supervillain regardless of what's you know what what it could be you know yeah a great episode to use from Next Generation as a film idea is uh, Yesterday's Enterprise. Because I, I went back and I watched that recently. And the whole idea of this one event changing everything, um, I think that would be that would be pretty that would be something interesting to uh, investigate. I know that the whole series is kind of like that, the fact that um, that dreadnought came back in time, that Nero came back in time and changed the whole timeline. But uh, it would be interesting to sort of see that kind of ripple effect. Yeah, I mean, Archie and Kurtzman, who who, who yeah, obviously wrote Star Trek 2009, uh, you, you know, they, they, they absolutely cite yesterday's Enterprise as one of the, you, you know, influences in, in using that sort of, uh, you know, predestination paradox or whatever as the, um, as the time travel, you know, vehicle for, for this, for creating this new timeline. Just as a really quick aside on a note of that, I'm glad you mentioned it, Simon, because for, for me, Star Trek The Next Generation, if I'm honest, I, I always did watch it. But I wasn't when I saw the uh, especially the first season, um, I really wasn't that much of a fan. I, I, you know, I, I was always a fan of, you know, Kirk and the original crew. And it took me a long time to sort of warm to the new characters. And uh, yesterday's Enterprise, um, and then shortly followed by Best of Both Worlds in that season three, was the um, those were the two sort of key turning point episodes for me that got me suddenly really interested in Star Trek The Next Generation and, um, and you know, that crew. So, uh, so yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it is an awesome episode. <laughs> well, just continuing that aside, I always found with the sort of Next Generation kind of era series, so Deep Space Nine and Voyager, was that it seemed to take two series to kind of find its footing and then by the third series they got it and the, from there on it that those series were really good and it kind of started with next generation and then 
um, Deep Space Nine, funnily enough, followed the same kind of route because it did, yeah. Because they didn't quite. They were just a space station where people would drop by, and and it wasn't until like the third series when they got into the Dominion War, and same with Voyager. It wasn't until kind of seven or nine turned up that you know, and the sort of being in kind of Borg space that uh, that series got interesting. Yeah, we all got so. interested when Seven of Nine joined, obviously. <laughs> 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 I agree they did take a while to get going and, and sadly I mean um, I know you're, you you said at the beginning you weren't a fan I'm, I'm probably one of the only people but I, I was actually um, uh, a fan of Voyager but also a big fan of Enterprise in fact um, which again struggled I think on its first couple of seasons but when they got into the sort of Zindi war in the third season and definitely the fourth season where they started to sort of bring some elements from the original series in it um, I, I was really into it and really sad that it got cancelled actually and uh, I, I always find that, that the irony of all this is is that this whole reboot has literally written over everything with the exception of Enterprise <laughs> and I do like the fact that Admiral Archer gets uh, gets a mention by Scotty I, I was really happy about that <laughs> is, is that is that Admiral Archer's Beagle in the background. Barking. Yeah, there you go, right on cue. It's Porthos, <laughs> right, or, or, or Porthos offspring, or whatever it's supposed to be by then. Right on cue. <laughs> well, that's actually a Chihuahua, but I mean, <laughs> oh, it could be a prize beagle, right? Completely <laughs> agree. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget season three of Next Generation. Um, just it, it just automatically felt better, even even like the slight changes in the uniforms and things like that. You know, Wharf. Going from red shirt to gold shirt. I mean, things like that. It just felt like okay, they're gonna they're gonna play with things. They're gonna you know maybe just move things in a different direction. But then you know after yesterday's Enterprise, which is of course one of the greatest Star Trek episodes ever of all the series, um, that that first part of Best of Both Worlds was mind blowing. I mean, I'll never forget like you know Riker saying fire and then cut to to be continued and just like screaming at the television. You know, I think we have to wait you know several months before it comes back. But I remember all my friends who were watching it, and even those who weren't, you know, quote unquote Trekkies, were just blown away by that episode. And uh, and it's funny, I actually got to visit the set of that of Best of Both Worlds Part One. Um, what? I just yeah, I just happened to be on the Paramount lot with a friend of mine, and they were shooting the scene. Uh, it was with uh, I think it was with it, it was definitely Brent Spiner, and it might have been um, oh I forget her name, the actress who Brian Dennehy's daughter. Um, oh Elizabeth Dennehy, yeah, yeah, she was playing Commander Shelby. Yeah, yeah. In that um, they were they were like on a ridge on this alien planet, and um, I remember one of the prop people, uh, or actually it was maybe it was the director telling uh, Brent Spiner like a piece of the tricorder was a scanner, and I think and and Brent Spiner thought it was a phaser, and they had a minor. It was very minor. It was almost like a humorous disagreement over it, but it was just funny to hear them like like even then by season three they hadn't quite figured out what. The pieces were of the props, even though yes, it was a scanner, and Brent Spiner was wrong. I think he was still thinking anything approximately that size was a was a phaser. So oh, um, that's interesting because because yeah. obviously David Carson, who directed that episode, yeah, yeah. he ended up going on to direct because um, he did quite a number of the episodes, and I think some of the pilots and whatever ended up going on to direct the Star Trek Generations film. So, uh, which, by the way, I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that as well. But that I think is a is a um, misunderstood gem of a film. I really, I really love Generations. I know a lot of people hate it, but I, I really love that movie. 
Yeah, it was just silly things about that bothered me. Like it was a bit of a mess with regards to that you've mentioned about the uniforms and uniforms changing and, and, and stuff. And of course, Trek has always liked to uh, change its uniforms and give the uh, costume designers new stuff to do. You know, that's always been part of it. But um, in that one, you know, it was kind of a mix up between that and Deep Space Nine stroke Voyager type uniforms and uh, you know, so so there were little annoying things, but I agree with you. The film itself, um, you, you know, gets quite slagged off. But yeah, I still, I I I enjoy all of them to a certain degree. What can I say? You know, I I, I enjoy mean, Star Trek. <laughs> I mean, Generation, Generation certainly has some major plot holes that you can drive a truck through. But but things like the costumes, the mixing, the mixing, the mixing and matching of costumes, I actually kind of like because usually in Star Trek. Uh, the costumes change, you know, for the entire the entirety of Starfleet. They change off screen between seasons or between movies. It's like you go from the motion picture with these, you know, kind of like cream colored or you know, kind of like soft colored, uh, you know, uh, leisure suits they call them, and then the next movie, boom, like this, you know, burgundy militaristic, you know, uh, or na- you know, nautical looking, you know, uniforms uh, with no evolution in between. Whereas at least here, it was kind of like, oh, okay, so maybe. Some somewhere along the line, Starfleet put out the word, "Okay, we're, we're distributing new uniforms," you know, and like that. And we just caught them, we caught them in a period of time where the uniforms are being distributed. You know, that's why you're getting the mixing and matching of uniforms. I kind of liked that sense of you know uh, transition. You know, yeah, and it, it kind of makes it a bigger itself. universe as well, yeah. doesn't it? And, which I absolutely. which kind of works. Yeah, and and the film itself is a transition, so why not? You know, I mean, I also love the fact that um, Admiral Pike is wearing, you know, Admiral D. Kirk's uniform. In the reboot, I love that. It's pretty, yeah, it's, it's pretty close at the end, yeah. Mm. When he's in the chair, it's like that was that was pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's is it Michael Kaplan who's who's JJ's costume designer who he tends to use on these things. Um, yeah. He 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 definitely did a good job of of sort of you know I think JJ's mandate was something like always go back to the you know the original crew and the original series for 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 this design stuff and and i i quite like that in in the fact that the uniforms you you know they they were their own thing because of this new timeline but at the same time that you know they followed very closely um you know what we'd what we'd seen on the on screen as well and um i I thought that all worked rather nicely actually yeah (laughs) as as you said keith that um you know when you saw um star trek into darkness uh you had a few problems of it and uh, I know because I was there with you watching it. So uh, what were your problems with it? Well, I mean, y- you know, uh, it had enjoyable bits. So let, let me start by saying, you know, I didn't think the whole thing was terrible. It was it was it was an entertaining uh, film and there were elements of it that I liked and a few nods and winks that were good. But the thing that really bothered me the most was the fact that, um, you, you know, they'd established this new timeline um in the previous film you know they'd done it respectfully so it hadn't sort of said that everything else was crap but they could now basically go wherever they wanted and i thought why did they go back there because you know wrath of khan um is such an important film in the trek canon for me as charles is is absolutely rightly said ricardo montalban whether it was in space seed the original episode or or indeed that film massively charismatic and, a, and an important character and and don't get me wrong i love benedict cumberbatch as an actor you know i'm a massive sherlock fan 
Um, I think he's great. But to me, he was not right to play Khan. I mean, we talked about what a good job they've done with the casting in Star Trek uh, 2009, you know, with, with, with getting people who bring their individuality, but at the same time, you can kind of buy those characters, right? Benedict Cumberbatch, fantastic actor, but do I buy that he's Ricardo Montalban from Space Seed? Not at all. He looks nothing like him. He sounds nothing like him, you know? Uh, and I just was like, why did they go there? Why did they do that? Um, and then the other thing that really wound me up big time was when we get towards the end of the film and they sort of start reversing the roles of Spock and Kirk with the whole saving the ship in the reactor and Kirk, you, you know, dying, even though, of course, we already know he's going to live because of this super blood. So nobody's nobody's, um, you, you know, faces mortality anymore, which is another problem with it. But um you know, the, the the fact that they did that scene in Wrath of Khan, Kirk and Spock had been friends for over 20 years and it was really emotional, you know, and, and, and they had that. Whereas in this, this film, even though it was made two or three years later, was actually only set um, less than a year after uh, the Star Trek 2009, you know, in, in terms of the timeline, it's still set in 2259. Right. So Kirk and Spock had only known each other a year and most of that they haven't actually got on. You know, they, 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 they've not got on at all. So, again, I didn't feel that they'd earned that, you know, emotional scene at the glass door of the reactor. And then, you know, when he goes, Khan, you know, and he, he kind of all, all of that stuff. And I just thought, why did they go there? Why couldn't they have just, you know, use Benedict Cumberbatch, have him play another character? And, 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 you know, go on a, another adventure and have all this stuff. I mean, I didn't mind Carol Marcus being introduced into the film. That didn't bother me. And, you know, they, 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 they talked about Section 31 and you had Peter Weller, you know, um, in it. And there were, there were some good set pieces and whatever. But a lot of it, I mean, a lot of the beats, the way the film ends is practically the same as the way the first film ended, almost like shot for shot. And... I just, yeah, I was really disappointed with Into Darkness. Um, so, yes, I had my issues, and, and that's my rant over about that. <laughs> On to you guys. <laughs> I, I largely agree with what you just said. I, um, you know, I think, I think it's, a, it's a very uh, beautifully crafted film. I mean, I think the cinematography and the visual effects are, are, are pretty tremendous. And, uh, and as you mentioned earlier, Michael Kaplan, the costume designer, uh, who also did Blade Runner, by the way, with uh, Charles Node. Um, you know, really went to town with like, it seems like, and actually the, the same was true with uh, Beyond. I think that it was a different costume designer, but it's funny. It was almost like every day they have a different costume or every room they walk into, they have a different costume, but it's kind of fun too to see like there's this kind of, uh, you know, world of, uh, or every, every event and every meeting requires a different uniform of some kind. But um, on the whole, I agree. I, I think it was a, a mistake to go to con um, so early and in the way they did. And, and, you know, a lot of it had to do with the way it, um, it got out in the press, you know, um, ahead of time and where everyone on the cast and crew basically just, they had to, you know, straight up lie to everyone to say like, no, it's not con, it's John Harrison. Um, and then of course, when, uh, that, that scene when, uh, con or sorry, John Harrison is in the, uh, in the brig and, uh, and Kirk and Spock are on, are on the other side of the glass and he's explaining who he is and, He's got this, you know, Cumberbatch has this, you know, really even-keeled, very menacing voice. But then when he says, my name is, he, he, it's almost like he looks right into the camera when he says, Khan, you know, like, 
you expect the audience to go, ooh. And I think at that point, the audience was sort of like, ah, we kind of knew that already. And now it's, you know, it, it wasn't that interesting of a reveal. But um, I, I, I wish that uh, they had gone in a completely different direction and not gone back to Khan so quickly. And also, so it was very complicated and, and not in a good way. It was kind of convoluted, actually, I think, in terms of the plan um, and putting his people in those, you know, uh, photon torpedoes, which makes no sense to me at all. Why would you put p- people you loved uh, in potentially, uh, you know, dangerous weaponry, even if they weren't meant to actually be explosive? I mean, just, it just, you know, it just seems so convoluted, the, that whole plan. Parts of it also that concerned me was, was sort of like the, what I would call like the 9-11 porn of it. It was just the whole war on terror side of things I, I find a little overused and kind of cheap sometimes when when people try to you know weld that into a, a story um, without really deeper uh, consideration I mean maybe maybe they had a better plan but it didn't, it didn't come across that way when I saw the film um, but uh, yeah I don't know I just that to me was was a misfire you know even though it was well made in many ways and again I think everyone was committed to making a great film for sure I just I just feel like they were maybe trying too hard to chase the nostalgia of the Wrath of Khan and how they knew everyone loved that film. I mean, I, I think back to Comic-Con many years ago when Brian Singer, uh, it was after Superman Returns had come out. And at that point, he was planning on doing a sequel to Superman Returns. And his take on it at Comic-Con was, we're going to Wrath of Khan this one, you know? And I think, I think people are just like, they're too addicted to, to certain sequels, like Wrath of Khan, Empire Strikes Back. Um, aliens, you know, they, they just, they feel like, oh, that's what we have to emulate. And, and it usually doesn't turn out as well because those films, those sequels were bold and they took risks and they took chances and they did new things, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. it seems like everyone's trying to chase the, the, uh, the fan love, uh, by, you know, emulating these other sequels. I think there's a problem with Hollywood at the moment that they're not willing to take risks. So they're, they're quite happy to make films that emulate other films that they know have done really well in the past. And I, I don't think it's kind of the fans demanding that they want to see the same stuff. I think it's the studios saying, well, this is what people will go out and see because they've heard of it. But they're not sort of willing to take those risks like they did with like Rafa Khan and Aliens. And I think a lot of that's to do with the fact that they put so much money into these films. Because to think of it, the budgets for, you know, for Rafa Khan was less than the motion picture. I'm sure, well, I know that the budget probably for Aliens was more than Alien, but probably by not much, not by today's standards. So it was easier to take those risks. And that kind of size budget now is gone. They, they, yeah. There isn't the mid-range budget, so they're not quite willing to take the risks. So when they put like a, you know, 100 million, 150 million into a film, they feel that they have to have something there very recognizable. I mean, just take... The, the Ghostbusters film that just came out, they, it, it seemed like they were kind of willing to take chances with that because from what I've heard, people quite liked the new stuff they brought in, but then they had to bring in the nostalgia for the old film and that kind of stuff, you know, kind of brought it down. But um, that's what I've heard. I've not seen it. I don't plan to see it. You should, you should, you should see it and you should see it uh, in a 3D IMAX because it's, it's pretty amazing, like the work they did. Um, I mean, whether or not you like the story of the characters, that's, you know, who knows? Uh, I, I can't it sort of like so-so on that, but it's a really, I think it's visually, it's a really, uh, it's, like, it's like a piece of candy, that film. You know, I, I think why not just check it out? Yeah, I, but I'm, I'm getting this fatigue of seeing 
just these old films coming back and I think the only way to stop them from happening is not to get put money to us, not to go and see them in the theatre, not to go out and buy the DVD, because it's just going to push Hollywood to make more. Because they say, well, it made this amount of money. Well, surely we should make more of them. Because as, as we know from history is that when things don't work in Hollywood, then they, they look elsewhere. I mean, take the um, the musicals back in the late 60s they were flops and they didn't know what to do and then this independent film called uh, easy riders came along and it was a big hit and then suddenly they opened their doors now i'm not saying that would happen these days because of budgets but it would be interesting to see you know where they would go uh if all these sort of remakes suddenly stopped making money Sorry. Really quick, really just really quickly. Uh, you know, Steven Spielberg was infamous, uh, famously, I should say, quoted um, recently about um, the uh, the upcoming implosion of Hollywood. Like, uh, there's going to be enough big flops in a row that it's going to kind of really do some serious damage. And a lot of people are sort of looking forward to that, you know, because it is sort of like the end of the studio system in the late '50s, going into the '60s, and then the rebirth with independent film, as you say, Easy Rider, and then and so many other, you know, great 70s movies that kind of had a, like this creative renaissance. And I think people are just, you know, people who love movies are dying for that new renaissance to happen. But, you know, technology has changed, the audience has changed, people's attention spans have changed. So I don't know if whatever is next is going to be as, as wonderful as uh, the 70s were. But I do think that um, it'll be interesting to see what Brian Fuller does with Star Trek Discovery with the new yeah. TV show. I'm 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 happy that he's involved very much. And so is Nicholas Mayer, apparently. He and Nicholas yeah, Mayer no, are involved. Sure. I, I think that has a chance of really being the bridge between uh old and new Star Trek fans, but also take it into a whole new direction that uh is compelling and has great new storytelling that you don't have to worry about recycling old plots or characters or or the, what I hate, I, I agree with you about the nostalgia thing. I think there's too much nostalgia, there's too much fan service happening. It's what I call Hall H filmmaking. Uh, because you know, at Comic Con, Hall H is where the studios bring out their big guns, and usually they have these filmmakers go up on stage and, and basically pander to the audience to say, "Look, we're fans too. You know, we're like we're like we're just like you." You know, and and half the time that the movies seem like there's no connection at all to what the fans want or even what the material demands. You know, so I would love yeah. to see people get away from having to worry about pandering to fans and just be storytellers, tell stories like. When you know, going back to like, let's say, you know, primitive man around the campfire, telling stories of the day's hunt. I don't think they stopped every five minutes to ask the people listening to the story, "Hey, what do you think of the story so far? Do you want me to change it? Do you want me to adjust it? Do you want me to, you want me to tell you the old story again?" You know, I don't. I think storytellers should be leaders, not followers. And I think there's a lot of following going on these days. Yeah. No, I appreciate. It. I mean, thank thanks for getting us back on on track, or or, or should I say, back on trek, probably there <laughs> with, with that. And and I, I I agree entirely. I mean, I, I kind of want to blame Damon Lindelof for uh, for for Into Darkness because um, I heard somewhere that it was him who who recommended or, or told JJ that we that he should. Um, you know, go back to Khan, but um, I don't know whether that's true. That's just a, a rumor, and everyone wants to blame uh, Damon Lindoff for something, right? Um, but but what, what what one of the thing one of the things I think would have been really interesting about Star Trek Into Darkness, and I was disappointed that this was only something that lasted a couple of scenes, and then they moved on with with the Khan story. Was I thought the more interesting bit was the beginning of the film where Pike 
basically takes the Enterprise away from Kirk for not following the Prime Directive, which, let's be honest, that's what Star Trek's all about, right? And I thought that was really interesting. I thought, oh, let, let, yeah, this is great when I was watching it, you know, and uh, Kirk got sort of busted and, and had the Enterprise taken away from him. And I thought that was brilliant. And then, of course, two scenes later, it's like, oh, we've got this, uh, we've got this emergency, you know, going on near near Kronos or whatever and we, we we need we need your help uh Kirk I'll give you back the Enterprise and he goes oh I think yeah Spock should probably be my first officer and there they are into that story but um you, you know as they were sort of taking everything in a different direction I I, I personally think that could have been um uh, an interesting uh tangent to explore with Kirk and, and Pike, but um, it never happened. There you go. One of the other reasons why I'm not a big fan of um, of Into Darkness was uh, the way people were just killed. Uh, I thought that was that wasn't done very well. I thought Pike's death was very a very empty death, uh, and that whole weird thing where Spock does the mind meld with him when he's dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, didn't like that. And I asked the the destruction at the end of um, San Francisco, um, mm-hmm. with the dreadnought class crashing into it, was kind of wiped over. I mean, it was like a year later, and it was like, oh, we're now doing this five year mission, and you know, nobody ever mentions what happened a year ago and all those deaths. You know, it's just yeah. No, I agree. The of course, of course, the other thing. Sorry, I know I said I already had my rant, but there was one <laughs> little point that I've just remembered that really annoyed me. I said how in the first film, having Nimoy in it was brilliant because he was part of the story and the character. I'm sorry that the 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 ringing up Nimoy to ask him what's going to happen and that ridiculous cameo in this film really pissed me off. And I, you know, I love to see Nimoy. I mean, another sad loss, um, love to see Nimoy in anything normally, but, uh, I just felt that that was a really weak bit of storytelling in this film. It's like, Oh, and, and not, not only that, let's call Nimoy and speak to him ship wide. Let's not even go to my personal quarters and have that conversation with him in private. You know, he, he puts it up on the main view screen. And I just thought, well, and I and I love this. There's all those sort of joke videos out there now where he's going, uh, oh, yeah, and you might want to get some humpback whales. That could be useful and, uh, you know, <laughs> and all that sort of, sort of stuff, which I thought was quite funny. But uh, it annoyed me in the film. Especially when his first lines are, well, I did tell you that I couldn't reveal anything about your future, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, having said that, yeah, yes. I was like, oh, come on. Uh, what did you think about that bit, Charles? I think you. Uh, the, the, you mean the the phone a friend from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah it was you know, again, uh, not the most inspired moment, but you know, again, as you say, it's great to have Nimoy make a moment like a cameo of sorts. And I, and uh, you know, I, I thought the way they they included Nimoy and Beyond was was tasteful, and actually, that particular moment towards the end where you see the whole the old old crew was touching. So, but yeah, I, I think that was not. The, the best i'll just i'll just leave it at that um I, I i just feel like that whole film was all about name checking and riffing and you know kind of reliving rather than doing something incredibly new you know yeah another yeah. another issue i actually have with into darkness is you know I, it, I i know there may be some other explanation uh but we see khan in that little that little ship uh during the attack at starfleet um he beams out of that ship and it's crashing. And then the next time we see him, he's beaming on to Kronos. And 
are they saying that now there's like this, you know, this uh, long uh, distance uh, transported technology where now you don't even need, need you don't even need ships anymore. Just beam your people to wherever they need to go. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, yeah. it was it was supposed to be what Scotty had um, right. done in the first film to get obviously uh, Kirk and himself back to the Enterprise while it was warping, and and Spock obviously gave him the equation that he hadn't yet invented, you know, right. to do that. But then they have some crappy line at the beginning of um uh into darkness about how um you know in that secret starfleet um place that noel clark goes to yeah that they'd um they'd actually uh stolen that technology that that, that scotty had done for the you know personal trans warp beaming but like you said yes suddenly you don't need starships anymore because you can beam anywhere with that you obviously don't have to worry about dying anymore because all you need is a little bit of Khan super blood and 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 you know you're you're back to living again so yeah. you know it was just yeah it was all that sort of thing just really wound me up i was like ah come on uh, you know this is not good just <laughs> as just as you're saying that i was remembering the red letter media review for into darkness where they said oh we would have loved to seen at the end like Khan up you know strapped to machine and they're just pumping the blood out of him <laughs> 24 because now they've got the cure you know to to live forever or they got the cure for radiation sickness you know I'm sure there's there's always going to be like some caveat that's going to come up in one of the other films it's like yes we do have this miracle blood but it only works on this <laughs> yeah and, and and maybe I'm forgetting the movie but um, all of Khan's people, all 72 of them, they all have, they're all genetically engineered, right? I mean, they're all yeah, like basically right. human. So they all have the same blood, presumably, right? Yeah. So did they, did they actually have to go chasing Khan? Uh, I mean, they, they had to, ca you know, capture him, obviously, but they didn't have to wait for Khan's blood to, to save Kirk, right? Because it seemed like McCoy was like, you have to, you have to bring Khan back alive for the blood. Is that how I, that's, I mean, right, yeah. that's how it was when yeah. they could have just thawed someone else out, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I i've heard i heard a theory somewhere where they said well but see they they had only tried khan's blood so that was the only one they were sure that it would work for yeah but they had a bunch of tribbles laying around they could have tried it on a, on a tribble <laughs> yeah 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 it was it, uh yeah no it, it it really didn't didn't tick the box for me i, I just felt it it wasn't as well thought out and and that bothered me. Whereas I thought that they had done such a good job of of um, thinking through the the, the, the first film, uh, or oh, sorry, the reboot film, so that it's uh, it, it kind of you know on a level. Bearing in mind we're talking about sci-fi fiction here, but uh, uh, you know on a level kind of made sense, you know, and worked. Whereas I I didn't feel. Um, that with into darkness and i agree with what you were saying simon about all the spectacle of destruction that you had to have at the end which you you, you know seems to be in every hollywood film that or every hollywood blockbuster that comes out now you've got to have these scenes of mass destruction everywhere and yeah it's just like what yeah <laughs> well the, the one thing all three films have is people being blown out into space and the the I remember the first time I saw that in Starship Troopers, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. But now having seen it three times in the Star Trek films, I'm kind of, I I feel sorry for the poor crew members because it's like, you know, I wouldn't want to work on that ship because it, it gets hit and you're whoop, blown out. And, you know, I thought that they did it really well in the first one, but then in the second and the third one, it just got, 
I don't know. It's kind of like you see it too much, and it it doesn't have the same effect that it had in the, those other films. It also seems like the, like shields don't exist in this post Kelvin universe because I mean the Enterprise just gets right off the bat in every single movie just takes you know serious damage. There's like no moment of like shields down to you know seventy percent or thirty percent. I mean they say those lines, but you don't really feel there are shields actually deflecting fire. Yeah. No, especially as you see all these crew members being sucked out into space. I mean, what? yeah, that was, again, something very simplistic in Wrath of Khan mm. that they did very well, I thought, was um, that simple graphic where when they put the shields up, you see the li little right. formation of dots go around the, 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 the sort of plan shape of the ship on the display. And uh, I, I know, you know, very, very basic, but... I always thought that was a really good way of communicating how that worked, you know. Um, and like you said, they don't even seem to exist in the new films. <laughs> well, and also to, to go quickly back to Generations, I mean, in the opening of that film, when Enterprise B takes that massive hit uh, to the lower part of the ship and, you know, Kirk gets sucked out into space. And when Scotty and Chekhov go down, I mean, to, to see what happened, uh, you know, there's this massive, massive hole ripped into the ship, but they're perfectly protected because of shields, you know, like yeah. shields are keeping them protected. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think shields really have ever played a part in these new movies in a, in a way that I think, you know, old time Star Trek fans are used to. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's, there's some changes there for sure, yeah. but... Uh... Saying that, I would say that um, Star Trek Beyond does a lot to sort of, um, you know, make up for Into Darkness. Um, I have to say, when I, when I sat down to watch uh, Star Trek Beyond, um, after the the Enterprise crashes onto the planet, I had no idea where this was going. And I was actually quite, I was enjoying that because I had no idea what was going to happen. Yeah, me also. Uh, I, I, I This was one of the ones where... I had seen the trailer and I was slightly worried because obviously, you know, as, as we've made clear, wasn't particularly happy with Into Darkness and saw the trailer for this and was just a little bit uh, worried. I was like, oh, I don't know. And I agree with you, you know, you sit down to watch it, you don't know where it's going. And I really felt that this did a really good effort of going back and capturing the spirit of, of the original series. I love the fact that it was, you know, 966 days, um, which was a little reference to, a, you know, uh, the 50th anniversary being 966, but, you know, 966 days into its um, five-year mission. So we were kind of picking up, like, you know, almost three years into it. And, uh, you know, you kind of believed that they, you know, they visited a lot of these planets. And, and I like the whole Yorktown base uh, the sort of Dyson Sphere Yorktown base that they that they go to, and you really got a sense of that that world. And um, uh, you know, much as Gene Roddenberry had always wanted, you know, the 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 the, the federation of, of of all these different planets and cultures together. And um, yeah, I, I, for me, this this film really sort of ticked a lot of um, Star Trek boxes. And uh, you, you know, I know Simon. Uh, Peg has taken a lot of credit for that, as as he was involved in the uh, in in the writing process on this. And if if he indeed did come, you know, push for a lot of that stuff, then then good on him, I say. Yeah, I mean, I I was also concerned by that that very first trailer that you know used Beastie Boys sabotage in it, which 
strangely enough, in the film, I think they use it beautifully. Um, but, yes. <laughs> but, in the, but in the first trailer, it was scary to see Kirk on a motorcycle, and just it just seems so wow. What we've come so far away from the Star Trek that we we thought we knew. But um, it's interesting because the first two um, of the of the as you call like the Kelvin universe movies um, uh, really relied heavily on Earth. Um, even though they went out for a bit, they still basically come back to Earth. And to me, Star Trek is always about going out there, right? Going beyond. And so it was nice to see in this film that they actually do go beyond and they go out to other planets. The thing with, with Yorktown is, is it's basically another Earth. You know, I mean, it's basically skyscrapers and plazas and fountains and pedestrians walking on streets and things like that. So that I thought was a little bit of a cheat, even though it's a fantastic design and it's visually stunning. Um, it felt a bit of a cheat to me. Um, but it didn't bother me either because I was having so much fun with, uh, how old school the film felt. And, uh, mm. and I really, I really loved how the characters got divided because of the enterprise crash. Um, I thought that was really smart. I mean, in, in, in a similar way, when the empire strikes back divides Luke and R2 from the rest of the heroes, and they themselves are divided from, you know, the, the, the empire invader. It's like, it's kind of nice to see these characters split off because you get more personal moments with them and you get to learn about them more. And in this case, I thought the Spock McCoy, you know, uh, plot was really wonderful for those two characters because they have such a long history together in the, in the, the original TV shows and movies, and you know, the kind of the, the love hate relationship they have really was beautifully, I thought, depicted here. Um, and uh, and you know, I, I again, it was sort of like it's too bad that some of the crew were just basically prisoners trying to get out. It's more of like a POW movie, but. Um, ultimately that the way they came together, I thought was earned and very well handled. And I, have, I do have some questions about, about Quell and, and, and his, you know, his whole thing. But other than that, I think it's a pretty solid movie and definitely a, a huge step up from Inner Darkness. Concerning Kroll, I think, um, his reveal, uh, I actually would have liked to have known that a bit sooner because it, it had some reason, you know, the fact that spoilers have you not seen the film that he's been abandoned and um and from where he's coming from is you know because of that abandonment and I, it would have been interesting more to have known that earlier than say sort of near the end yeah yeah i mean one of the things they did did nicely in this was um much like the first film as well is in terms of the characters, they you, you know the crew characters. That is, they they all had their moment. They all had something to do, you know, um, which which was quite nice. Even though some of them, as you rightly said, Charles, were just kind of prisoners, but they all got their sort of moment to kick ass or or, or do something cool, which which was nice. But I agree with you, Simon. The the whole um, Idris Elba thing which again again it's funny we had kind of sherlock as the villain in the last one and we got <laughs> luther is the villain in this one which is which is uh, another great uk show um but uh you, you know i mean i particularly liked the fact that um the uss franklin was was kind of a a descendant about a decade on from enterprise because as i said i've already really mentioned that i was I'm, i was a fan of, of enterprise even though a lot of star trek fans weren't and I like the fact that they kind of did use a, a similar design to the NX-01 um, that they'd had in that show. And again, they were filling in a little bit more of that history that happened between Enterprise and the Kelvin. 
and um, you, you know, by having that in there. But uh, yes, it would have definitely given the character a bit more resonance uh, if we'd known a bit more of that sooner instead of them trying to make it a dramatic reveal later in, in the movie and in the plot. Now, am I right in saying that um, Idris Elba's character was um, that he had been a warrior in the... Was, did he say he was a warrior in the Klingon Wars? Now, in the Zindi and in the Romulan Wars. So essentially, okay. when they had they had Makos on the Enterprise, which are the military, which obviously Star Trek, I know, is not supposed to be anything to do with military. But in season three of Enterprise, they actually, because um, that's before, that's you've got Starfleet, but you haven't got the United Federation of Planets quite yet at that point. They're working towards it. And because of the Zindi threat to Earth, which is interesting because that was never been mentioned. <laughs> that was never mentioned previously, but you had this big war. And um, they had these commandos on the Enterprise called Makos. And obviously they said that I Idris Elba's character quite possibly was one of the young, the younger uh, members on, on the original Enterprise for that. But they also said that he fought in the Romulan War, which is the thing that takes place sort of between Enterprise and the formation of the United Federation of Planets. It's in that sort of uh, early 2260s. And um, uh, yeah, so they, I, I kind of like those little references for me, for, you know, the fanboy part of me kind of liked that they sort of tried to tie it in a little bit there. Yeah, no, I think that was actually, I was kind of surprised that they did that um, because as you say, Enterprise is not the most beloved of all the, the shows, but um, I thought that was a nice touch. And um, I'm, I'm curious to see how they continue to, uh, you know, track the the, the pre-Kelvin timeline into the post-Kelvin timeline. Because I was just thinking earlier when we were talking about the motion picture, I mean, V'ger is on his way, <laughs> you know, in the, in the Kelvin timeline. There's no change in that because Voyager... Six, I believe it was, went went out yes. into uh, space. Um, yeah. So V'ger is on on its on its way into the post Kelvin timeline. So I'm like, okay, are we going to see that at some point? You know, is that going to be addressed? Because that's a major a major issue that's going to affect Earth. And I'm not sure this particular crew is is um, ready for it in the way that the other crew was. It's maybe differently ready, but I feel like this crew is more about like let's blow the shit out of V'ger, you know, <laughs> rather than uh, rather than <laughs> talking to it. So who knows? We'll see. And we also have the probe that wants to talk to Humpback Wells coming. Right. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, which is almost actually, although tonally a very different film, um, the actual initial setup at the beginning of, of, of Voyage Home was actually quite similar to the motion picture in that respect, you know, with this sort of threat coming to Earth, um, uh, you know, that they had to do something about. But um yeah, it, it is interesting. Um, again, you know, you were you, you've mentioned, and I'm I'm glad you have, Charles. You talk you've talked quite a bit about costumes and uniforms and stuff, and that's always been one of the things about Star Trek that I've always kind of liked in terms of the whole world building of, of creating that universe. And um, I kind of like that you, you know the the uniforms that they had for the which Spock ends up having to wear when when his his one gets messed up, you know, with, with his injury, you, you know, those, the, they were kind of a nice little blend sort of between the uniforms they had in enterprise and, you know, where the uniforms were by the time you'd got to the USS Kelvin. And this kind of, again, sort of filled a little gap in, in that whole continuity. And uh, I love it when they, when they do all that sort of stuff, you know, <laughs> so uh, the, the, the geek in me loves all that shit, but um 
but yeah, I, I thought this film um, was was very, very interesting and, and worked really well. One of the things I did want to mention as well about this, because I like the fact that they didn't make it a thing, is obviously what Roddenberry always wanted about this utopian future was, you, you know, all the isms were ignored. So, you know, there was no racism, sexism, um, ageism, all of that stuff was was ignored um, along with, you know, religion and disability and, and all of that stuff within the United Federation of Planets. But obviously they dealt with the whole sexuality thing as well in this by having the, um, by having um, Sulu uh, character, you know, giving, giving a bit more sort of backstory to, to that, even though, Obviously, we knew he had a daughter in in Star Trek Generations, but uh, y y you know the fact that um, you know he was in a same sex relationship raising that little girl, and and what I liked about that is they had it in there without making it a big deal, without making it a big thing. Did did you, did you guys do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I was curious by the sort of backlash there was. Um, they it may not have been made a thing in the film, but uh, certainly in the public's eye, it was made a thing of. And uh, they said they did it as a nod to uh, George Sakai, the fact that he is, you know, gay in real life. And then um, he came out and said, well, I didn't play Sulu gay. <laughs> I, I never saw the character that way. And as, as much as I'm, you know, flattered that, you did this, I also feel that it's not true to Gene Roddenberry's vision of the character. Interesting. I found it was kind of, that was interesting. I mean, it was made more of a thing than it should have been. I've noticed the whole LGBT thing um, in Hollywood at the moment. It seems that every show and every film, um, definitely every, every show on television now, whether it's relevant to the plot or not, seems to have to uh, almost like, tick that box for some reason there are some things that it works for because it's absolutely integral to, to the story and to, to the characters or whatever but then there's other things where it just feels like it's been shoehorned in for the sake of it um and, and I, I i don't know whether you, you know it's become sort of some mandate or whatever but have you noticed that with, with with stuff lately that um everything seems to try and be addressing it somewhere well, I mean, really quickly, I just wanted to say yesterday here at, at Star Trek uh, 50 here in Vegas, uh, George K was on stage and the question was asked of him, like now, you know, now that you've seen Beyond, what do you think of the whole, you know, Sulu is gay controversy? And he, he maintained the story that, you know, that you guys talked about, which was, you know, that Roddenberry envisioned him as straight and so on and so forth. Um, but he also said, now that you've seen it, it's like, it's not that big of a deal. It's like it's not even like a moment. It's it's, it's less than a moment because all you, you could make an argument that they're not even in a same sex relationship. It's just they're like you know family or relatives or whatever. Uh, it's sure. so light, it's so lightly touched upon. It's not like they kissed. You know, I mean, literally just putting one putting their arm around the other, uh, and it just it's just like you know, it's just it's what it should be. It's just family. You know, it's like not the fact that they're both men makes no difference. There's there's there to 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 be reunited, which I do think is a strange moment that Enterprise crew have family on Yorktown, wherever that is. It just seems like that's uh, did they come out to meet them? I kind of missed that plot point, or were they living there? I, I'm all about like what's true to the characters you're writing and the situations you're writing. Um, I, I you know changing a character's um, sexual preference uh, 
to to pay homage to somebody or to to be popular is I, I don't think that's the way to go. I think the way to go is who is this character and what what is their life and what what is the best way to depict that life and is it is it even relevant? You know, um, and if it is relevant, then embrace it. You know, and I, I'm not sure that I think Beyond did a really good job of tiptoeing around it. Like get, they get, they got their cake and they ate it, ate it too. You know, they kind of yeah. like said he, he's he's gay, but we're not going to throw it in your face, which is. Again, it doesn't really matter to me because if he's gay, he's gay. If he's not, he's not. It's fine either way. Just what does it mean for the story and the characters? That's what that's what's important. Yeah. Which is kind of what Roddenberry always said, didn't he? That was one of the things because he always used to get a load of stick that there wasn't, you know, uh, gay characters or whatever in his in his in the universe. And he said, but we're so far in the future. By that point, it doesn't matter. Nobody. It's it's not a big deal. And uh, that that's that's. That's what I thought they did kind of well with with addressing it, if you even want to put it that way, uh, in this film. Um, it didn't really seem to to be a, a big deal at all. And I thought, yeah, I, I don't really see I, what you were saying, Simon. I don't really see what all the all the media backlash and hype was about, really, because so what? It didn't really make a difference, did it? <laughs> well, I think people just want to be offended for being offended's sake. You know, oh my God, Sulu's gay. Oh no, I must go on the internet and bitch about it. One thing you have to understand, at least here in the states, and I'm sure you guys are catching parts of it as well, is like we're we're dealing with Donald Trump. <laughs> we're dealing with <laughs> yeah. we're dealing with like yeah, you know, our whole political situation right now is just crazy. And uh, fortunately, I think it's stabilizing, and and all the the, the nut jobs that came out are starting to go back into the shadows and hide under the rocks again. But I, I do think that. That's the that's the climate right now. You know, there's this there's this heightened sense of political correctness that uh, people seem to be either for or against or whatever. But people seem to want to talk about it. And the fact that Sulu and Star Trek Beyond stepped into that crossfire for about five minutes, uh, that, you know, that became that became the talk of the day. You know, and now it's over. I think because we're we're dealing with a social media generation now, where um, you know, there's a lot of websites out there, and they need to create traffic, and so they you know, they write articles like this and be offended because they know people are going to click on it and they're going to read it. And of course, I think people follow that as well when they're on Twitter and Facebook, you know, I am so offended. Sulu's gay. And it's just like, well, so what? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like there's a scene in the film where, you know, Sulu's in bed with a man. Yeah. There's, there's nothing to be offended by. It's like, it's, it's, if so there, if they are a couple, they're a loving couple who's raising a child. And what is wrong with that? Does it matter if, what their sexuality is? No. And by the way, it's, it's, it's probably even more offensive to see Carol Marcus in her underwear. You know, which yeah, I don't, yeah. by the way, I'm perfectly happy to enjoy that. <laughs> but I'm just saying, it's like I, that, that to me is more uh, just exploitative of, uh, of, of the character, you know? Yeah. Yes. And that just brings me to my next point was what happened to Dr. Marcus? Because she was a part of the crew at the end of uh, Into Darkness and then nowhere to be seen in Beyond. Kirk knocked her up and she's gone off to regular one to uh, to, to, <laughs> to try and, you know, deal with world population problems and, and create a new uh, a new planet out of uh, out of something lifelessness. Oh, weird. Where's that going? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That is the best answer I've heard to that question. Yeah, Kirk, Kirk, is just, Kirk is just doing what she wanted. He stayed away. Like that's exactly. Star Trek too. He stayed away. Did what he wanted. I stayed away. 
<laughs> Indeed. Oh, one of the things I loved as well, talking to that is, is um, when they're saying about, you know, it's just, just approaching Kirk's 30th birthday and, you know, he obviously outlived his dad and all mm. this sort of stuff. But I like the toast at the end where he goes, here's to perfect eyesight and a full head of hair. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yes, yes, no, no Alice Eve in this film. Yeah. I mean, there was also a... Uh, didn't they make a toast to absent friends as well? Poignant, yes. Very poignant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I have to admit, it's it's uh, you know that the thing with Anton Yeltsin is, is tragic because you you know he was what only twenty seven. Mm. Um, I just seen recently as well. I don't know whether you've seen it. Green Room. In fact, there is a Star Trek connection there as well because Patrick Stewart's in it, isn't he? Um, and. Uh, you, you know, which yeah. was fantastic. And he was great. You know, this, this guy sort of had everything going for him and to unfortunately, you know, be involved in such a, a tragic accident like that is, 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 you know, I'm so glad they put the dedication to both uh, Nimoy and him at the end of the film. I think that was uh, very respectfully handled. And, and also apparently, and, I, and I'm liking this, uh, JJ has announced that uh, they will not be recasting Pavel Chekhov for future films so so kind of full circle I guess it's going to go back to uh, what you mentioned at the beginning Charles about the 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 animated series because of course the animated series did not actually have Chekhov in it did it that's right because they didn't want to, they didn't want to pay to have the entire cast back so they lost one of them basically which makes no sense but um yeah no I, I'll be curious to see how they deal with that I'm sure he'll either be away on another assignment or maybe they'll work his passing into it somehow who knows um but um i i i'm glad they're not going to recast it just i wonder if the next one's going to be the final one for this particular cast because i don't know i'm not sure how much longer they can go if they don't address where Chekhov is you know i mean yeah. it's like it's like um was it insurrection where where wharf just kind of showed up for the wedding like randomly from deep space nine it was kind of like white wharf just happens to be in town and he's going to join him on this adventure was that how that worked on, on it was yeah yeah. yeah, I think that worked yeah. with both films. I think he sort of turned up for actually actually three of the films because First Contact, he was on The Defiant. Which oh, worked. Right. That made sense. That, yeah. You see, it made sense in the first yeah. film, but the, yeah. the two that followed, it really didn't. And Michael Dorn did very well out of that whole franchise, really, didn't he, to yeah. get included in all this stuff. But it made sense in... <laughs> in uh, first contact because obviously they were sending all the ships to um you, you know to, to to fight the borg and of course that's what um uh the defiant had been designed for in the first place right was to right. was to battle the borg so that in that that's film right, it yeah. made total sense but in the other films yeah wharf suddenly showing up was kind of like just a convenient way of getting the actor in character in there which which was always a bit weak i thought but so this, yeah so this will have to be the opposite of that is as almost as if they made a deep space nine movie but then Worf disappeared because he had to go to help the enterprise so it's yeah. kind of like we're you know chuck off will have to have disappeared you know some other mission yeah Let, we'll, we'll sort of sort of finish now uh but just summing up our thoughts about what we where we think this gonna where this series is gonna go but i i would like to see the Klingons play a bigger part in this series because so far they were cut out of the first film and they played a very minor part in the second film and actually I would like to see the Klingons be the villain of one of the the, the films coming up 
Um, yeah. yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I, I got to be honest. I didn't really fall in love with the new Klingon look, even though it's not radically different. I just, it just, I'm not in love with the new Klingons. Um, but if they can find a way to develop them and make them more interesting, um, that'd be great. You know, I'd love to see the, the notion of a Klingon component in the, in the new film would be great. I just wonder, um, since it presumably will have some sort of time traveling going on, um, you know, what will be the, the catalyst for that? You know, will will it be to, you know, avert a war or change something in history or to, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just curious how that's going to work. I think I, I, I can't, I'm not going to like repeat it because I'll, I'll, I'll blow it. But I, I remember, um, I don't know if you guys know Devin Faraci. He writes for um, Birth, Death or Birth, Movies, Death. Oh, uh, yes. He had a really interesting theory about the, 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 the time mechanics of the next film, which would bring George Kirk back t- to see his son, James Kirk, would somehow end with having to erase this new alternate timeline. So basically the timeline would now be healed and go back to the prime timeline again once and for all, but um, this current alternate timeline would have to be erased for that. And, and, it's, and it's like Kirk, James Kirk, will have to make the sacrifice that his father did and kind of, and kind of bring it full circle. I, I don't know if I'm getting that right, but I think that's the gist of what Devin was saying. I think that's that could be a really interesting way to go if they decide this next movie is the final one for this cast. Yeah, that would certainly be a way to end it. Yeah, I mean, that is interesting, and, and this is the thing. I mean, you know, Star Trek's always dealt with, with time travel, even though it's it seems to have dealt with it in different ways uh, throughout, throughout the sort of history of Trek. But, um, you, you, you know, it will be interesting to see what they, they do. Um, I mean, one of the things I'm quite interested to find out more about, and I'm not sure th- this this new show that, that – Brian Fuller, who oh, I love Brian Fuller because I think he did a fantastic job on the the Hannibal TV series, which sadly got cancelled. But um, uh, and, and obviously he'd done some work on Trek earlier in his career. He'd, he'd written for um, episodes of Voyager and 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 I believe some Deep Space Nine as well, perhaps. But um, you know, obviously got him doing this new series. Is it called Star Trek Discovery? It is. Discover? Yeah. Discovery. Discovery. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I obviously there's not much, much detail out there about it yet, but I'm not sure if that which era that takes place in, and whether it's in the primary timeline or, or the Kelvinverse timeline, and whether or whether it's after the next gen, or whether it's you know before Enterprise. Or I, I, I don't really know where it's sort of taken place, but uh, I don't know whether where they end up going with that is 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 also. As as they're trying to do with the franchise, tie everything in. I don't know whether the next film will will have anything to do with that. Who knows? Um, it would be interesting. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Whatever happens. <laughs> well, I suppose the great thing is that it doesn't have to even be slaved to the post Kelvin timeline. They can go back into the. It can it can be post Kelvin in the timeline in the overall timeline, but it doesn't have to follow that alternate reality you know it no can it still, can be it, in the pr- primary timeline right yeah. it can be, be yeah. post Calvin but primary timeline you know yeah. with, without uh, the Narada having changed time or whatever so um, I, th- I get the feeling it's going to be that but I don't know for sure I, I do I have to say I'm very intrigued by the design of the discovery um, being based on uh, Ralph McQuarrie uh, design for uh, I think it was, it was called Planet of the Titans it was, it was one of the earlier attempts at getting Star Trek into uh, you know going beyond the original series and, yeah, uh, phase two, wasn't it? Star Trek yeah, phase, phase two. two yeah, there was, I think there were a variety of attempts to, to you know, move beyond the original series. And so this is one of the old designs from of the, of the new, quote-unquote, new Enterprise from back then, from way back then. So it's kind of nice that they brought that back. I think it's kind of an interesting design, this ship. 
Yeah, I mean, as I said to you, Keith, it does. The back of it looks like an old uh, Klingon cruiser from the motion picture. <laughs> yes, it does a bit. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Um, it, it's interesting to see where it goes. I, I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm just excited that we're, you, you know, I, I was when they cancelled Enterprise um, back in 2004, 2005, whenever it was, and obviously I know it was only a few years till we got the reboot star trek but you know it was the first time in something like 19 years that there hadn't been any any star trek on on television and uh, even longer you know that there hadn't been any movies and stuff and uh, i was kind of sad because y- y- you know um big fan of it uh, so I- i'm quite excited by the fact that we're we now got you know not only at least one more movie, if not more movies to look forward to, but we've also got a, um, a television series too. And, uh, I, I guess, uh, there, there's a lot of talk about this, um, at the very event that you're, you're at Charles. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I, I you know, I have to say that probably say 90% of this, uh, celebration here is about the past of Star Trek. Um, it's all about celebrating the different types of, of, of fandom within the Star Trek community. But, um, there definitely seems to be a lot of uh, curiosity and excitement about where it's going next, especially with Discovery. I think that because that's the clearest next step, and uh, I think people are, are excited about that. But I think most people here are basically here to just kind of <laughs> celebrate what what tiny little uh, kind of like back alley of Star Trek they particularly like. There's a lot of like niche, uh, really obscure reference type costuming going on and cosplay happening. It's, it's it's kind of it's fun. You know, it's a lot of fun to see people like. Uh, embrace a, a random character from one episode and like that's their cosplay you know like it's just it's kind of funny to see people really go that deep cool and, and we're gonna see discovery obviously late this year to sort of still correspond with the 50th anniversary are we or is it or is it planned for early next year i gotta be honest i don't remember what the date was if it was late this year or early next um i, I get the feeling it's early next but i could be wrong about that maybe it is maybe you're right maybe it is to take advantage of the anniversary later this year i think i heard it was going to be next year as well fair enough well as long as it's good (laughs) that's all that matters isn't it so uh yeah yeah and the people involved i mean the fact they've got nick mayer involved as well as brian fuller on this i think is good because obviously nick mayer's contribution to the star trek franchise you know with um what he did in star trek 2 and 6 and obviously some of his writing duties on star trek 4 um you know, I think he's a very sort of switched on and, and, and creative guy to have involved in it. So I'm pleased to hear that. I think it'll be a great combination because Brian Fuller being not just a great you know, writer producer, but also a fan and, and Nicholas Meyer being a writer producer, but not a fan. Um, yeah. That balance will be really healthy, you know, for, yeah. for storytelling. Yeah. It'll be that whole, uh, you know, JJ said he was sort of sat between Brian Burke, who 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 wasn't a fan, and obviously Ochi and um, uh, Kurtzman, who were who were massive fans. So he kind of had, you, you know, he could bounce it off each of them, so that it would tick the boxes as far as the fans were concerned, but also somebody new to the franchise, like you said, taking your girlfriend, for example, to it. Um, you, you, you know, it would work for them as well. And I think that's, uh, that's, that, that's really cool when it works that way. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end it. Indeed. <laughs> uh, so Charles, uh, where can we find, uh, more of your work? 
Uh, well, <laughs> um, I guess you, you could probably uh, just look me up on IMDb, uh, and then maybe from that, go to Amazon or whatever else you want to go. And if, if you like any of the stuff you see listed on IMDb, but uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm not I'm not a big salesman for my own work. It's weird. It's like I, I, I'm happy to talk about my work and happy to talk about other people's work, but when it comes to like telling you how to find my stuff, I don't know. Just go online and find me. <laughs> And uh, do you like have a, a, a Facebook fan page or anything? Um, I don't know. I don't know if I have one of those, but you, you know, if anyone wants to find me on Facebook and friend me, that's fine. Um, I'm on Twitter, which is uh, at Lazarica, which is my last name, and uh, same on Instagram. And uh, yeah, that's kind of my social media presence at the moment. <laughs> and Keith, where can we find your work? Yeah, uh, you go to YouTube and put in British Isles, spell E-Y-L-E-S. Um, there's, there's a showreel and some short films on there. Uh, feel free to comment, share, you know, whatever. Um, but you can get in touch that way for sure. And as always, you can find my work on independentrunnings.com. Uh, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and all good podcast providers. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And uh, if you're on iTunes and Stitcher, please leave, leave us a rating and a review. Well, that just leaves us to say uh, thank you to you, Charles, for uh, coming on and talking Trek with us. Thanks for having me. I'm about to go downstairs and see William Shatner. <laughs> oh, I'm so envious. Yes, and enjoy the rest of your uh, your your time at uh, uh, the Trek celebration there in in Las Vegas. And, um, yeah, it, it's just been a real pleasure to have you back on the show again. We really, really appreciate your time. So, um, have fun. Yes. Enjoy. Thanks. Live long and prosper. <laughs> hey, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> okay. Beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> and let us go where no person has gone before. Cause you can't hey. say no man anymore. No one. <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, thank you to you listener for listening and uh, join us again for the next episode of uh, Movie Heaven Movie Hell where we delve into the next generation movies. Mm-hmm.